morning, everyone. My name's Is my name is Jonathan Sams, and I will be teaching today. Um, taking on the theme of the perfect gift, I'll be continuing that with uh, Jesus Christ, the perfect sacrifice. Now, just as a little heads up today, our discussion is going to be very textual. Our text primarily comes from the book of Hebrews, chapter 7, 8, and 9. So if you guys want to turn to that, you can in preparation. Um, so this was written to be read together, these three chapters. So we're actually going to go through these three chapters today. Um, these chapters are jam-packed, and frankly, a study could be made from each one of these chapters, but we have a half hour, and so we're going to get through it. You guys ready? All right, let's go. Put on your chin straps, like we used to say. In the Old Testament, mankind lived under a different covenant, a different promise. Mankind lived under the law, and the law was strict, and it was harsh. Sin was not forgiven, it was atoned for. You guys have heard that term, atone, atonement, right? You know what that means? What's that? <laughs> a pay- Thank you. A payment in restitution um, or restoration. And this atonement was always purchased through sacrifices. So it wasn't forgiveness, it was atonement. In the Old Testament, there were many types of sacrifices that could be offered, and they had to be offered again and again, year after year. There were burnt offerings, there were grain offerings, there were peace offerings, there were sin offerings, there were trespass offerings, there were wave offerings. There were voluntary sacrifices, and there were mandatory sacrifices. The mandatory offerings were the ones that were for the atonement of sin. These offerings for the atonement for sin were always blood offerings. And the restitution and retribution price of the atonement of sin has always been death. In Leviticus chapter 17 verse 11 it says, For the life of a creature is in the blood, and I have given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. Blood and death are the unalterable, immovable, and unavoidable price of sin. There is no excuse for sin, and there are no exceptions to death. And that is why sin and trespass offerings always had to be blood offerings. You recall the story of Adam and Eve when they disobeyed God and sin came into the world? The story picks up at verse 9. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, The woman that you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Then the Lord said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent serpent deceived me and I ate. To the woman he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. And with painful labor you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. To Adam he said, 
because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. That is the curse. That's the curse that we live under. Not only were sacrifices for the atonement of sin always blood, each sacrifice also had to be an unble- of an unblemished nature. You recall in Genesis that Cain and Abel each made sacrifices to the Lord. Abel's offering was accepted because it was the fat of the firstborn of his flock. Cain's was rejected because his offering was not of his first fruits. Cain's anger at this rejection led to the murder of his brother Abel. Now I farm, and as we farm, we raise 4-H animals. These 4-H animals we take to the fair, we show them, they are rated, and then they are judged, and sometimes the kids get a ribbon, sometimes they don't. We've had animals with health problems. Those animals we barely kept in fairs, right? We know the difference between a blemished animal and an unblemished animal, and there is a big difference. And sometimes the fair may even reject animals that, uh, that are of such a blemished nature. If it's not good enough for the fair, it's certainly not good enough to atone for our sins before the Lord God, right? Sacrifices always had to have these criteria. It always had to be blood. It always had to be of an unblemished nature. Sacrifices had to be made in a particular place, the temple or the tabernacle, which was built in itself in a particular fashion. And, number four, people required an intercessor, an intermediary between themselves and God for the submission of the sacrifices. This person was the high priest who once a year entered the Holy of Holies to intercede on behalf of the people of Israel to offer people's atonement for their sins. The sacrifices themselves were offered by the priests of Levi. The the Levites were a particular tribe of Judah, and the law said only Levites were priests. This was the covenant before the cross, law and judgment, retribution and atonement, without which there was death. But in accordance with promise, with prophecy and promises by God, and by the design of a merciful God, Jesus Christ came as the perfect sacrifice. Turning now to our text, Hebrews chapter 7, we find that Jesus is the perfect intercessor. The chapters that we study in Hebrews set the stage for for describing first the Old Covenant and then the New Covenant. The Old Covenant was the covenant of the law. The New Covenant is the covenant of grace. The first part talks about the Old Covenant. The second part talks about the Old Covenant. The first part of Hebrews chapter 7 describes the priest Melchizedek, who lived hundreds of years before God gave the law before Moses. In other words, hundreds of years before the tribe of Levi, Levi was established as the priestly tribe. Melchizedek had a different set of, of rules that governed his priesthood than the Levites did. So when Melchizedek lived, 
there was a particular kind of offering. And then when the priest, uh, when the Levitical priest came, there was another. So there was a transition from one to the next. The priest of the law came exclusively from the tribe of Levi. Um, when and Melchizedek lived hundreds of years before Levi was even born. So he was not a Levitical priest. When God established the priesthood of the Levitical tribe, he also established the, the Levitical law that we think of as Jewish law. Starting in verse 1. This Melchizedek was king of Salem and priest of God Most High. He met Abraham returning from the defeat of the kings and blessed him. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. First, the name of Melchizedek means king of righteousness. Then also, king of Shalem means king of peace. And in fact, Jews and Arabs still use uh, Shalom or, or Shalom to mean peace, peace, in, peace be unto you. Without father or mother, without genealogy, and without beginning of days or the end of life, resembling the Son of God, he remains a priest forever. Just think about how great he was. Even the patriarch Abraham, this is the man to whom God gave the promises, even the patriarch Abraham gave him a tenth of the plunder. Now the law requires the descendants of Levi who become priests to collect a tenth from the people, that is, from their fellow Israelites, even though they are also descended from Abraham. This man, however, did not trace his descent from Levi, yet he collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. So Melchizedek blessed Abraham. And without doubt, the lesser, meaning Abraham, is blessed by the greater, meaning Melchizedek. In one case, the tenth is collected by people who die, but in the other case, by him who is declared to be living. One might even say that Levi, who collects the tenth, paid the tenth through Abraham, because when Melchizedek met Abraham, Levi was still in the body of his ancestor. It's a little complex, isn't it, right? Okay. Again, what it's saying is, is that, is that Abraham, who represents Levi and the law, rendered honors to Melchizedek. Because Melchizedek was not a priest of the law. So Abraham of the law rendered honors to one who was not of the law, but still a priest of God. And this is going to be an example of Jesus Christ. And also an example of the transition between regimes and promises. The author of Hebrews is saying that Abraham, who was the father of the people of Israel, the people of the law, rendered homage to God's priest who, who preceded the law. That was the regime that then existed. The author then goes on to say that Jesus is like Melchizedek, not of the tribe of Levi. Jesus comes from the tribe of Judah. Jesus is not a priest of, of Levitical law. Rather, he is a priest of a new and better covenant, a regime that comes after the law. So there was Melchizedek, who translated into Levi, and the same rules don't apply because Levi translated to Jesus, our new high priest, and yet a new set of rules. Verse 11, if perfection could have been attained through the Levitical priesthood, and indeed the law given to the people established that priesthood, why was there still need for another priest to come, one in the order of Melchizedek, not in the order of Aaron, meaning the Levitical law? For when the priesthood is changed, the law must be changed also. He of whom these things are said belong to a different tribe. What tribe does Jesus belong to? That's right, Judah. Was the tribe of Judah the priest? No, Levi, right? And no one from that tribe ever served at the altar. For it is clear that our Lord descended from Judah. And in regard to that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. 
And, and what we have said is even more clear if another priest like Melchizedek appears. And this is important. One who has become a priest not on the basis of regulation as to his ancestry, but on the basis of power of an indestructible life. So Jesus is not a priest based upon the law, right? He is a priest based upon his eternal sacrifice and his, and his everlasting life. He is a priest forever. For it is declared, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. So that is a promise that comes from Psalm 124. The former regulation is set aside, the Levitical law is set aside because it was weak and useless. For the law made nothing perfect, and a better hope is introduced by which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath, and they're talking about an oath from God. So when Jesus is established, unlike the Levitical priest, he was established with a promise from God. That's a big difference. And a better hope is introduced by which we draw near to God. Sorry, and it was not without an oath. Others became priests without any oath. But he became a priest with an oath when God said to him, again, Psalm 124, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. Because of this oath, Jesus has become a guarantor of a better covenant. There's some words of power in there. Oath, God's oath. Jesus, guarantor and a better covenant. Now, there have been many of those priests since death prevented them from con continuing in office. Levitical priests die, right? And so a new priest has to come. But because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. So we have one priest. And you when you hear that Jesus is our high priest, that is what is meant. Remember, to have a sacrifice, you have to have an intercessor. Who is that intercessor? That intercessor is the high priest. Who is our high priest? Jesus is our high priest, and he is one high priest who intercedes for us forever. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Such a high priest truly meets our needs, one who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day for uh, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. Remember the priests themselves? They were sinful human beings. They had to offer sacrifices for themselves first and then offer sacrifices for the people. He sacrificed for their sins once and for all when he offered himself. For the law appoints as high priests men in their weakness. But the oath, the promise of God, which came after the law, appointed the Son who has been made perfect forever. So when in the Bible you read that Jesus is our high priest, that's exactly what is meant. Jesus is our permanent and perfect intercessor forever, not a temporary and imperfect high priest as during the, the period of the Levitical law. And in fact, you'll see over and ag again through, through your sections of Hebrews that the old regime is imperfect, replaced by the perfect regime of Jesus Christ. Moving to Hebrews 8, the first part of this chapter, again the old, describes the old covenant as an imperfect imitation of heaven, of heaven. It also states that if there was nothing wrong with the Old Covenant, no new covenant would be required. Now, starting in verse 1. Now, the main point of what we are saying is this. We do have such a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of majesty in heaven. So where did he sit? In heaven. In heaven itself. That's very different 
than the high priest going to the Holy of Holies, right? The Holy of Holies was in either the temple or the tabernacle. It was an earthly design and imitation of God's throne room in heaven itself. So an imperfect high priest under the old regime going to an imperfect place, a place designed by human hands to offer imperfect sacrifices, is replaced by a perfect high priest who stands in the throne room of God himself, the real thing being our intercessor. Does that make sense? And who serves in the sanctuary, the true tabernacle of heaven, set up by the Lord, not by mere human beings. Every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. And so it was necessary for this one also to have something to offer. If he were on earth, he would not be a priest, for there are already priests who offer gifts prescribed by the law. They serve as a sanctuary. They serve at a sanctuary that is a copy of the shadow of what is in heaven. This is why Moses was warned when he was about to build the tabernacle. See to it that you make everything according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. But in fact, the ministry Jesus has received is as superior to theirs as the covenant of which he is a mediator is superior to the old one since the new covenant established is established on better promises. You guys with me? Okay. Testing. It is remarkable to note the similarities, I think, between the described temple and the description that John gives us in Revelation of heaven. Uh, there is the lampstead in both places. There are the cherubim in both places. The length and the width are reflective of each other in both places. The sea, the huge bowl that was in the, t- that was in the temple, imitates the real sea in heaven. Um, so we see these similarities over and over again. So what John saw, we think of Revelation as being fearful. What John saw in his vision of heaven isn't just something for the end of times. It is the day-to-day heaven that goes on every day. The magnificent splendor of God in heaven it, itself. I think that makes Revelation more approachable and the temple more understandable. And I think it deserves a study in and of itself. The second part of Hebrews 8 goes on to describe the promise of the new covenant from the books of Exodus and Jeremiah. These promises came in the books of Exodus and Jeremiah back in the Old Testament, even though they were talking about the new covenant. A covenant that replaces the law and brings us close to God. Chapter 8, verse 1. For if there had, uh, uh, Verse 7. For if there had been nothing wrong with that first covenant, no place would have been sought for another. But God found fault with the people and said, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. And I will not be like the covenant, and it will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt. Because they did not remain faithful to my covenant, and I turned away from them, declares the Lord. This is my covenant I will establish with the people of Israel. After that time, declares the Lord, I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbors or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest. For I will forgive their wickedness and I will remember their sins no more. That is the new promise. By calling this covenant new, he has made the first one obsolete. 
And what is obsolete and outdated will soon disappear. You remember in John chapter 3 when Jesus threw out the money changers and they asked of him by what authority he does this. And Jesus answers them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you are going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. So it's worthwhile to kind of think about Babylon when the Babylonians came and they destroyed the first temple, the Temple of Solomon. And then later, God came to King Cyrus in Persia Persia, and said, I want you to pay to rebuild the temple and my people back, which is exactly what King Cyrus did. That was in the second temple. There was a reason for that. The temple was still needed. The high priesthood was still needed, and a place to sacrifice was still needed. But in 66 AD, when the second temple was destroyed, for over 2,000 years, that temple has not been, has not been rebuilt. The temple and, and the imitation that it is of heaven is no longer needed because we have a new covenant. So in a lot of ways, this is like a rolling wave that grows. God created man, and there was a perfect relationship between man and God. And then man fell through sin, and God cursed him. But he said, I promise you, I'll make you right. And that, and that way was initially made through the Levitical law. And so you have this crescendo that begins to happen. But the, the Levitical law is imperfect, and it cannot save us. It can atone for our sin. But then our perfect priest came, right? And he served in a perfect temple. And so this crescendo continues to grow. And eventually, Jesus Christ will come back again on the second coming. And there will be the day of judgment. And God, in all of his majesty and fearfulness, he will either judge us or we will stand with him together. Jesus Christ is the priest of a perfect covenant. One where we are no longer separated from God, but one in which we are reunited with God. One in which we are no longer governed by law. God's law will be written on our minds and hearts, and through Jesus Christ, we will know God. So, so far we know that Jesus is the perfect high priest, the perfect intercessor. We know that he doesn't stand in an imitation. The place of sacrifice is no longer the earthly temple, right? It is heaven itself. So he stands in a perfect place, perfect intercessor in a perfect place. Moving on to Hebrews 9. Hebrews 9 discusses the need, purpose, and function of the temple. It describes how the priests conducted their ministry and brought blood offerings for the atonement of sin. So going to verse 1, again, the Old Testament and the New Covenant. Now, the first covenant had regulations for worship and also had an earthly sanctuary. A tabernacle was set up. In the first room were the lampstead and the, t- and the table with its consecrated bread. This was called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a room called the most holy place which had the golden altar of incense and the gold-covered Ark of the Covenant. This Ark contained the gold jar of manna, Aaron's staff that had budded, and the stone tablets of the Covenant. Above the Ark were the cherubim of the glory, overshadowed by the atonement covering. But we cannot discuss those things in detail now. So he came to the same conclusion I did. We have other things to talk about, right? When everything 
had been arranged like this. The priests entered regularly into the outer room to carry on their ministry, but only the high priest entered the inner room, and that only once a year and never without blood, which he offered for himself and for the sins of the people had committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit was showing by this that the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed, as long as the first tabernacle was still functioning. This is an illustration for the present time, indicating that the gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshiper. They are only a matter of food and drink and various ceremonial washings, external regulations applying into the time of the new order. The second part of Hebrews goes on to, to provide that Christ did not enter an earthly tabernacle to be the sacrifice. Rather, he entered the most holy place of heaven itself as that sacrifice. And that his blood is not like that of animal sacrifices that had to be shed year after year. Rather, he, his is the perfect unblemished, unblemished love that is shed once and for all, being our redemption forever. So moving on to the second part of chapter 9. But when Christ came as high priest of the good things that are now already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made with human hands, as we speak of. That is to say, not a part of this creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once and for all by his own blood. That's really important material. The blood of goats and calves were an atonement for sin, and they had to be offered year after year. You cannot compare the blood of goats and calves to the blood of Jesus Christ, which is the perfect, unblemished blood that is the price of our sins. So that sacrifice had to be made once, once and for all. But he entered the most holy place once and for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who who are ceremonially unclean, sanctifies that, sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God. For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sin committed under the first covenant. In the case of a will, it is necessary to prove the death of the one who made it. Because a will is in force only when someone has died. It never takes effect while the one who made it is living. This is why even the first covenant was not put into effect without blood. When Moses proclaimed every command of the law to all the people, he took the blood of calves together with water, scarlet wool, and branches of hyssop, and sprinkled the scroll and the people. people. He said, this is the blood of the covenant, or that blood of animals, which is the blood of the first covenant. He sprinkled with blood the tabernacle and everything used in its ceremonies. In fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. It was necessary then for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these sacrifices. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a sanctuary made with human hands that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself, now to appear for us in God's presence. Nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again, 
the way the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood that is not his own. Otherwise, Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world. But he has appeared once and for all at the culmination of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself, just as people are destined, are destined to die once and after that to face judgment. So Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many. And he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. Jesus has become our intercessor, our perfect high priest. Jesus offered sacrifices in the throne room of God himself, not an earthly imitation of that throne room. Jesus offered himself as the perfectly unblemished sacrifice. Jesus' blood was once and for all, completely forever, one time offered for us. Jesus is the high priest of a new promise, one of grace where we may actually be reunited with and know God, which has not been true from the time of Eden until the sacrifice of, of Jesus Christ on the cross. Jesus Christ is the perfect, everlasting, absolute, immovable, undefeatable pr price and redeemer, intercessor, high priest, promise, covenant, and sacrifice, providing us grace and mercy. The blood of Christ was the perfect sacrifice to atone for our sins, and Jesus Christ stands in the, premises, in the presence of God in the most holy place as our high priest and intercessor forever. Jesus is the perfect sacrifice, and through him we are redeemed.